0: Be <clears throat> seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys, uh, in your small groups, are you having good discussions and getting more and more into the text here in James? Yes. Good. Our group is, our group is great. We're having a great time. i been enjoying it a, a lot. And I would encourage you to take part in a small group if you haven't yet. You know today, I think, as I was thinking about the message and just praying, even as Chad was singing and sharing, I was just thinking about the fact that we're going to be dealing with some big issues today, some big, important things, some things we should know, some things we should understand, things about how we're saved, things about how how we know we're saved, things about what is required of us after we're saved has to do with our salvation, as James will put it, as Paul puts it, our justification before God. What makes us right before God? So I I would just encourage you, we're going to spend some time even comparing, looking at at what James says and what Paul says and how do we understand that. And and I would encourage you, if, if, if it's getting like technical or it's like, oh, this isn't really what I, realize we're talking about your eternal salvation, the most important thing in your life. We we began last week. Last week, we were in verses 14 through 20 of James chapter 2. We saw this relationship, this thing we've been talking about, this thing that the the world talks about, everybody's talking about, uh, in, in religious circles, the relationship between faith, trust in God, belief in God, and works, our actions, what we do with that. And James made it clear that faith without works is dead, useless, worthless. He said that faith and works, though, can't be separated. It's not that you can have faith and it's dead because you don't have works. It's really you don't have faith. You can't separate genuine faith From works. They go together. He also made it clear, in in really a dramatic fashion, he made this bold statement in verse 19. That it's not, not just a set of intellectual beliefs. It's not what you believe, and it's not even an emotional response. That's not what faith is. Because the demons have that, and we know they don't have genuine faith. True, biblical, real, genuine faith certainly involves what we believe with our head, how we feel in our heart, but will ultimately be demonstrated by what we do. Genuine faith will ultimately be demonstrated by what we do. It involves our mind and our emotions, but it's revealed in our will, our actions, our works. Works are evidence for and the natural outflow of genuine faith. James says, brothers and sisters, let's be very clear about this. Faith, genuine real faith, produces works. Works of love, works of obedience. We'll talk about that today. And if you can't see that, James says, if you don't believe that, then you are a fool. A fool, James says. And that brings us to verse 20. We talked about the end of verse 20 last week. We're going to do the whole verse this week. Do you, want to be show, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, James says, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? So James has made the, said the propositional truth, and now he's going to give us some examples. Look, I've made my point. It should be clear to all. I've given you the test of genuine faith. If you say you have faith but have no works then your faith is useless. It's useless to the people around you because it is not helpful. The person, remember last week, the person comes to your door, they're starving, they have no clothes, and you say, be warmed and filled on your way. It doesn't help anyone, and it doesn't save. This kind of faith doesn't save, James says. So it's helpful, not helpful to anyone in your world, and it's not helpful to you. It's useless. And if you need further convincing, let me give you two examples. James says. Two witnesses, so to speak, from the Old Testament. Verse 21. Was not Abraham, and I'm going to read this whole passage and then we're going, to, we're going to look at it. Verse 21 to 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now we're going to look at Abraham and Rahab in a minute, but I want us to first consider just this whole passage, this, as, as I read through it, the statements that James makes, I think probably to us, sound a, a little bit strange to our ears, don't they? And, we, and we're not alone in that. The book of James, this passage, this verse as we've looked at today in particular, has caused debate throughout church history. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing. Martin Luther, the great reformer, struggled uh, immensely with this book of James through his life. He called it at one time the straw epistle. The straw epistle. And even said at one point that, that sometimes he wanted to throw Jimmy into the stove. If he could just get James out of the Bible, that would solve a lot of his trouble. So my point in sharing that is, is this isn't an easy passage to understand. But like all scriptures, it's crucial that we seek to understand what James is saying. So, so let me ask you a question. This is: We have our small groups, and, and, so, and we get to participate. But I, just a little bit of large group participation. As you look at these verses that we've just read, chapter 2, verses 21 to 26... It should still be up on the screen. Maybe you have... If you want to take out your Bibles, they're in there. That's where we're going to spend in our time. Why do you think the church has struggled with this passage? With, 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 what's, what's the problem? What's the issue? What's, what's the struggle? Gary? Okay, so the issue of works and faith. Other thoughts. Which is First. Patty, the asphalt's are up on this. I like it. Why is that a problem? Why should you feel that? Because Paul says that. Right. We got a problem here. The main issue is that these words in James seem to contradict other words we've heard in the Bible, specifically words from Paul. Just, just a few examples. In Romans chapter 3 verse 28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. That word justified that both James and Paul uses means Declared righteous before God. Paul says our our declaration of righteousness before God, our right standing before God, comes by faith alone. It doesn't come from works of the law. James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, probably some of us have memorized this. It's a pretty famous passage. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says we are saved by grace, by the grace of God, through faith. There's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. It's a free gift. It's not a result of works. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And finally... Both Paul and James, interestingly enough, use Abraham as a, as a key example. Paul, in, in both Galatians and the passage we're going to read in Romans, turns to Abraham. In, Abraham. in Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul makes it clear that Abraham was not justified by works. He believed God and was counted righteous based on his faith. James speaking of Abraham says, and we've just read, you see, faith was active along with his Abraham's works, and faith was completed by his Abraham's works. So to summarize, Paul says, Abraham and we in, in all of these are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Works have absolutely nothing to do with our justification before God but James says that Abraham and we are justified by works and not by faith alone quote you can see the problem can't you you can see why this has caused such major debate and you can see why Martin Luther just want to throw Jimmy on the fire there so how do we deal with these apparent contradictions and this is, this is helpful here in, in James, because this is a, a big one, and we were going to go through it. But it's helpful in understanding Scripture in general, I think. And I believe there are three things that can help us understand here. I want to give you those three. First, and this is foundational, we're not going to prove this, we just don't have time. This is foundational truth of the church throughout history, that we believe that the Bible is, the, is inspired by God. Our doctrinal statement says, our doctrinal, Bridges Christian Fellowship, our doctrinal statement says, we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God, inerrant in its original manuscripts and authoritative for daily living. Therefore, we believe that the Bible is true, the Bible is understandable, it doesn't teach us things that are false, it doesn't contradict itself, therefore, we, we must seek to harmonize, to bring together what it says we must seek to understand how James and Paul fit together but second we also understand that there are issues in interpreting the bible think back we it's inspired in the original manuscripts we understand there's translations throughout history and, and we understand we're finite we're sinful we're separated We're separated in time, and we're separated in culture, and we're separated in language from the writing of the Bible. And as we know, even even in our world today, we know that language can confuse, can be very confusing when different words carry the same meaning, and when the same words carry different meanings. Take, take for example, the English word uh, rock. Simple word, right? Something came, when I said rock, something came to your mind, well, it might not be the same thing that came to someone else's mind. It might mean a stone. It might mean a kind of music. It'd be something you do in a chair. What I like to do in my old age. Rock, rock, rock away. Or it could be a man's name. Yo, rock, you know. All right, sorry. <laughs> Has a lot of meanings. Or take, or take the Greek word, zelos, which means jealousy in a bad sense, or zeal, in a good sense. So if someone says to you, I think you should try and overcome all of the zealous, all of your zealous in your life. Before you agree, you should say to him, which kind of zealous are you talking about? My envy, my jealousy, or my zeal, my joy for life? Because the, well, the word means both. When we lived in Thailand, we worked with a number of people from the United Kingdom. And we all had to adjust to different meanings. of the. We all thought we were speaking English, but American English and British English is is a little bit different. I mean, it's mostly similar, but there are nuances. Like football didn't mean the same thing at all. Or the the word for boot, a kind of shoe for us, was the trunk of a car for them. Biscuit was a savory little, what is a biscuit? Dough and stuff. For them, it was a sweet cookie. You know, so, would you like a biscuit? No, I don't really feel like something salty. Well, they're offering you a tray of sweet cookies. And, and the list goes on, and, and I think we get the point here. We know this. The same words or phrases can have different meanings. And different words can have the same meanings. This is true in our day, and it's true in the, it was true in the Bible. John Piper said, the inspiration of the word of God is like the incarnation of the Son of God. When the Son of God became a human being, he he became vulnerable to abuse and death. When the Word of God became human language, it became vulnerable to ambiguity and to misunderstanding. This means that there are issues in interpreting the Bible. But it doesn't mean we can't understand the Bible. I want to make that clear. Through, Through study, through prayer, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit... God's word, and in almost every case, can be clearly understood. But there are issues in interpreting. So the third thing we need to understand... So we've got... First is what? The Bible is inspired by God. Second, that there are issues in, in interpreting the Bible. And third, when we, when we come to a passage or a book, we need to understand the purpose of that passage what's going on here what's going what's the purpose of this book what's the purpose of this passage who did the author write the letter to and and why did he write it we can't really understand the meaning of something unless we understand the purpose for which it was written for example if you picked up a found a letter you're over at my house and you picked up a a letter and it was you know to, it was a letter written to a a, a lady a, a woman named beth and it was talking about how much I loved and missed her and wanted her to come home, you would think, if you didn't know that Beth was my daughter, you would think, oh, who's the pastor writing to? If you don't know the purpose, then you can misinterpret what's been written. Does that make sense? Now let me say this about the New Testament. In general, the New Testament was written as an explanation And a a defense, a defense of Christianity. As Christianity began to grow and spread throughout the known world, as churches were established in different places, in different cities, these churches would, would immediately come under attack. There would be persecution from without. And there would be attack from within. And in reality, and this continues today, it was the attacks from within that that caused the most trouble, the most struggle. And there were really two main attacks against Christianity. And these attacks continue today. The first is known as, and we've heard this term, the first is known as legalism. Basically, legalism says that faith alone doesn't bring justification before God. We must add to faith works of the law. If you remember our study of Galatians, you'll remember that that people were trying to convince the the church there in, in, in Galatia, the Christians there, that they must, along with their faith, add works of keeping the Jewish law, specifically the laws pertaining to circumcision. If they wanted to be justified before God, they needed to be circumcised first. They needed to keep the Jewish law. We see this kind of attack on Christianity continue to this day. People in churches, denominations, that say there are certain, certain things, acts you must do, works you must accomplish, food you must eat or, or not eat, ceremonies you must participate in or not participate in before God will accept you. So the first main type of attack that comes against the church is what is known as legalism. The second type of attack it came against the church and, and still comes against the church today is what, what many people call easy believism. Have you heard that before? Easy believism. And as evangelical Christians, I believe this is the attack that we're the most susceptible to. That's why James is really important for us. Oh, I let the cat out of the bag there. We'll, we'll get there in a second. Early, I mean, excuse me, easy believism says that, that all you have to do is believe. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. All you have to do is have have faith in Jesus. That if you believe, if you say you have faith in Jesus, nothing else matters. Nothing else is required. You're justified before God. It doesn't matter what you do. After that, your salvation is secure. Now you've probably figured out where I'm going with this. As you examine the writings of Paul... And the writings of James, it seems clear that both are defending the faith against these major attacks on the early church, attacks from within. But Paul, in general, is defending against legalism. And James, in general, is defending against this easy believism. They're they're in a very real sense. I mean, you might think of James and Paul standing toe to toe like fighters, boxing each other out. What is, works? Faith, faith works. It's that's not the case. They're really standing back to back, defending the gospel against attacks from from different things. And they've prepared, and they and they say different things. I, I don't know if this this will make sense. This is what I thought of. I thought of your house. You want as a as a. As your your home and your family within your home. Think of that, and and you need to defend it. Well, if you know that the, the attack is coming, going to come from a a thief, a burglar, someone breaking into your house, you'll prepare by calling the police, by maybe getting a bat out. I don't know what you know if you have a if you have a, a firearm or something. You're you're ready for that kind of attack, and you you prepare that way. But suppose you know there's a there's a a fire around you and there's a fire coming and you want to protect your home. You're going to prepare in a a different way to defend your home. You're going to call the fire department. You're going to get out your hose and be squirting it down. Depending on where the attack is coming from is how you defend. And so James and Paul are defending the gospel, the truth of the gospel, from different attacks. This legalism, this easy believism. Now combine that with the fact that language itself can confuse us with different words. Different words carry the same meaning, and the same words carry different meaning. I think we we can understand why James and Paul seem to contradict one another. Their purpose is different, and their words have different meanings. I put a little chart. If if you have your notes, and it's the, the back of your notes, I put a little chart there. We'll go through that, but just for you to keep. A simple chart to help us see that. Paul and James both use the words faith and works. But because of their different purpose, the words have different meanings. When Paul uses the word faith, he means real, encompassed in the word faith. He means real, genuine faith. Faith that has given itself completely to Jesus Christ. Faith that saves, faith is, is Chad Point. faith that trusts in Christ for the works that you will do, faith that's given itself completely. To Christ, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This full faith. When James uses the word faith, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person's words, their profession of faith, what someone says about themselves. And that profession, those words, may or may not be genuine faith, the faith that Paul talks about. We don't know. Just because someone says they have faith We talked about this last week. Does it it make it so? James says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, can that faith save him? James is talking about your profession of faith, what you say. Now when Paul uses the word works, he's talking about the works that people must do, the works that people think they must do, if they're to be saved. Works are the things... He's speaking against works as something that you earn salvation with. Paul's against that. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But when James uses the word works, because he's defined faith as what you say, when James uses the word works, they're the evidence and natural outflow of genuine saving faith. Faith produces works. You see verse uh, 22 of chapter 2. You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by works. Faith, what you say, for James, is completed by what you do, your works. So I hope this is helpful in, in harmonizing what James and what Paul is saying. So as you read through James, especially this Passage last week and this week, as you read through those, you can say, okay, I get it. I get it. Why James and Paul sound so, so much different. Knowing that Paul and James are defending the same thing, but they're defending it against two different kinds of attacks. Now, before we go back to to James, before we look at Abraham and Rahab specifically, I want to point out, even though Paul in general is defending against, I I want to make our point too. Our point is what? Today. Anybody? Faith, Produces, Works, that's the title? Okay. Before we go back to James and see that again, as with his examples of Abraham and Rahab, I don't want to leave Paul alone. I want us to know that Paul teaches the same thing as well. Even though Paul in general is fighting against legalism, specifically in Galatians, you know. We studied that and we should know that. Because that was the whole the whole, there were these people coming down upon the church saying you had to obey the law if you wanted to be a Christian. But Paul, even though he's fighting against legalism, understands that works are also a natural outflow and evidence of saving faith. Let me just give two quick examples. The first is found in Galatians. Remember the the whole point of Galatians defending against legalism, but in in chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not obeying the law that matters, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Paul says, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. What matters is you have faith, that's working out in love, that that is seen in love. What counts with God is faith. But what kind of faith? Not dead, useless, just words, but faith that works through love. Isn't isn't that exactly what we saw last week when we studied James, that that faith produces works of love? Paul Paul understood that genuine faith would result in these acts, these works of love. The second example comes in the book of, Ephes- comes in the book, yeah, of Ephesians, where Paul gives us, again, we, we read these verses, most quoted verses regarding salvation by grace and faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one would boast. It can't get much clearer than that. Paul makes it clear to the legalists that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's a free gift from God, not as a result of works. But then he says in verse 10, which we often fail to, you know, we stop at verse 9. We don't go forward. We maybe even have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But we don't know what 10 says. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's works. Paul says that for those who are saved, not by their good works, but by, the, by grace through faith alone, this will result in good works. That God has prepared. And we should walk in those. We should, we should, we should seek those. We should find those. We should do those. God has prepared good works for us. And good works that we can only accomplish. Why? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Because Christ has entered into our life, because God has prepared these good works for us to accomplish. They're not to earn anything. But Paul agrees with James that faith produces works. Now, in the time we have left, let's turn over to James, back to James chapter 2, and those two examples from the Old Testament. Again, remember, James is defending Christianity, defending these. Against this easy believeism, this easy believeism—it's really summarized in, in verse nineteen. You guys remember verse nineteen of James chapter two? Even the demons—you believe God is one. You believe in one God. You believe the the Shema from the from the, uh, the from Deuteronomy, the truth that God is one. Good. The demons believe and tremble. Those who say that all they need to do is believe in a set of truths, and they're justified before God, James counters first with Abraham. He says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We studied this not too long ago, just weeks ago or months ago. This event, when we were studying the life of Abraham, this event is recorded in Genesis chapter 2. This was the, the culmination ...of our study in the life of Abraham. Remember, this was Abraham's ultimate test of faith. Would his faith prove genuine? Would he have works to go along with the faith? Would he obey God and offer his son Isaac on this altar? And remember, for James, works are the the natural outflow... ...and evidence of genuine faith. So he says, Abraham was justified by works... But then he explains what he means by that. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Abraham's faith is an example of genuine, real faith. Because true faith produces, is active along with, and completed by, works. Abraham was justified by works only in the sense that his works proved that he had genuine faith. You guys get that? Abraham was justified by works in the sense that his works proved that he had genuine faith, that his faith was real, that it wasn't just lip service. James makes this clear in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. A little pop quiz. You guys like quizzes? Only, if you were here for our study in Abraham, well, if you weren't, you can answer too, but if you were here, you should know this. When did Abraham believe God and it was counted to him righteousness? When did that happen? I have no idea what you're saying. No, but nice try. When when, when does the Bible say that? That could have taken place then, but... It's it, after Lot, right? In Genesis fifteen six, Genesis fifteen six. Remember, we did the, that whole. If you were here, we, we, we when we were studying through Abraham, we did a whole uh, whole week on Genesis fifteen six, where we talked about it, how how it was used three times, three or four times in the New Testament, one of which being right here in James. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham had just rescued his nephew Lot. From those four kings from the east, if you remember, these kings came down and took captives from Sodom and Lot. He'd returned home, and and God came to him in a vision. And in the vision, God promised that he would have a son, a a natural, actual heir, physical heir. This heir would be an heir to God's promises. God told Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the stars in heaven. And then, in Genesis 15-6, we read what James is quoting... And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The point is that Abraham had this genuine faith, this faith, this justification. He was justified before God, counted righteous before the Lord. What did Abraham do to gain this righteousness before God? He didn't do any work. He believed. And he was declared righteous by God, by, great, by the grace of God, and through his faith in God. And this took place some 30 years before the events of Genesis 22. So 30 years, Abraham was dec- 30 years ago, if we're, if we're here in time, at, at verse uh, 21, where he's offering Isaac on the altar, 30 years prior, Abraham had been declared righteous through faith. Abraham... had passed. But then then 30 years later, he had passed that ultimate test of faith. Abraham had passed the test. Abraham proved that his faith was genuine. Abraham didn't gain any righteousness from his work, his act of obedience. Abraham proved, or as James puts it, the scripture was fulfilled. It became full. He was declared righteous, and then he proved his righteousness when he passed that test of faith. Genuine faith, was present, and the evidence for that was that natural outflow of that genuine faith came in the works. When Abraham obeyed the Lord in this ultimate test of his faith, he was willing to sacrifice his own son. And James summarizes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, for James, faith is what what you claim, what your words say. Without works, It's useless. Works are the natural outflow and evidence of genuine faith. So when James says, in that we are not justified by faith alone, he means that faith which justifies doesn't remain alone. Faith that justifies isn't alone. For Paul, he's putting those together That word faith encompasses them all. For James, he's separating them out, and but he's he's separating them out and saying, if you have one, you don't really have. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. Abraham shows that genuine faith will always produce works of love and obedience. Second person James uses to illustrate the point is just a, a, a major contrast to Abraham. Rahab. Rahab was a woman a Gentile, and a prostitute. Abraham was a, a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a great leader. She was a common citizen. He was at the top of the socioeconomic order in his day. She was at the at the bottom. Yet Rahab, the, the harlot, is listed along with Abraham in the hall of faith. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, this listing of all the... the, the the people in the Old Testament, or many of the people in the Old Testament who demonstrated their faith. Abraham, Rahab is right there along with Abraham. By faith, Rahab, this is Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She's in the hall of faith. And even more amazing, if you didn't know this, is the fact that Rahab, this Gentile Prostitute is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She's a, I don't know how you say that, an ancestress, an, an, a, a, an ancestor of Jesus. She was the great-grandmother of King David. Rahab's story is recorded in Joshua chapter 2. She wasn't only a not only a prostitute, but she had her own inn. She was an innkeeper in Jericho. When Joshua sent two men into the city, remember the story. The, the, the children of Israel are, are wandering around. They're about to go into the promised land. And Joshua sends the two spies to spy out Jericho. They went to Rahab's inn because it was on the wall. They didn't want to go, venture too far into the city. But when the king of Jericho heard about the spies, he sent men to Rahab's place to arrest the spies. But Rahab chose to protect them. She hid them on a roof. And then falsely reported that, that they had left the city just before dark. She also suggested that the soldiers be sent to, to capture them. She diverted the soldiers away from her roof, away from the spies. And after they had left, we read in Joshua chapter two, verse nine. And Rahab, and, and said to the men, this is Rahab, said to the men, the men, the spies, "I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us." Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. So Rahab not only acknowledged that the God of Israel was the true God, she understood his power, and there was fear in her. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. She understood who the one true God was, and she trusted in him. She put her trust in Him. Rahab chose to risk everything for this Lord. If she had had been found out, she would have certainly been put to death. She had a decision to make. Will I put my faith in my own king, in my own culture, in my own people? Or will I put my faith in the God of the Israelites? She chose to put her faith in the Lord. And she, like Abraham, was counted righteous. She then, in an act of obedience to God, protected the spies, James says. And in the, same way, in the same way as Abraham, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In the same way as Abraham, this prostitute was justified by her works as with Abraham and with every other believer. She was counted righteous when she put her genuine faith in God, when she gave herself over to the God of Israel. And as a result of her righteousness, we see works of obedience to God. Her faith proved genuine because it produced works. If she would said, said, all of those words, and then said, and the spies are up there, go get them. Wouldn't have been genuine faith. Like Abraham, she was willing to lay everything on the line. She was willing to trust the God of Israel over her own people, her own gods. James then summarizes in verse 26, as we conclude this section. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works. Faith. Is what to James? Just the words saying, I I believe. Apart from works, to James, works are are that natural outflow of genuine faith. James concludes with this, this warning. And we need to get this. He compares dead faith, faith without works, to a body without a spirit. Both are useless. They have no power. They're not justified before God. They they will not be saved. It's important that that we understand that not everyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Do we get that? James wants us to get that. He's battling against the idea that all all that matters is what you say. He's saying that is not the fact. Not everyone who says they're a, a Christian will be saved. Not everyone who says, "I trust in the Lord for my salvation," will be saved. Jesus made that abundantly clear. He warned in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. <laughs> He's just repeating what I just said because I read what he said first. So I I repeated what he said anyway. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven the one who does the will of the fa- the one who does the will of my father the one who does the works the works of love the works of obedience the works that god gives us jesus and paul and james are really all saying the same thing it's not just what you say about your faith that matters what also matters it does matter what you say about your faith What also matters is can your faith be seen in your life, how you live? Does your walk match your talk? Put simply, does your faith look like the faith of Abraham and Rahab? Does it obey the Father? Does it risk everything? Is it willing to sacrifice for the Lord? Is your faith demonstrated by a love for God? A love that results in obedience and service to Him. Is your faith demonstrated by a love for your neighbor, a love for other people, looking out for others' best interests, sharing your resources with those who have physical needs? James was big on that. It's a big thing to share what you have, your physical resources, with those who have needs. Or, or, or sharing your genuine faith with those who have spiritual needs. Is that what you're doing with your neighbor? And are you doing it? Just Understand this, and I think this is key. Again, I'm not saying to run out and and start doing these things if you haven't been. I'm saying if you're not doing these things, you need to go back to God. Trust in Him. Because we can only be doing these things through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And So if we're not doing them, then we need to question, do we have that power of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to close in prayer, and then Dave Melhuish is going to come and He's going to lead us in communion this morning. And I just want to encourage each of us as we, as we remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to examine our hearts. to Ask ourselves, is my faith genuine? This is the most important question that you can ask yourself. It's an eternal question. Or have I bought into this easy believism that James is warning against? To, to To bottom line it, is is your faith, if your faith isn't resulting in works of love and obedience, then you have to question the genuineness of your faith. It's not that that, those works of obedience, I hope this is clear, earn you anything. It's that those works of obedience always follow genuine faith. So if they're not there, you have to question your faith. You have to turn to God. Give yourself completely to Him. Trust in Him completely. Trust in Him over your king and over your culture like Rahab did. Trust in Him completely, even with your children like Abraham did. Ask Him to give you genuine faith where you can release everything to Him. Faith that will produce works. And if you'd like to pray with someone or or talk to someone about your faith, there are people here at Bridges we'd love to, to, myself, our elders, others that you, that you know that would love to meet with you and pray with you to help you on this journey of faith, to help you determine and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father oh, God, thank you. Thank you for this warning. Lord, we need it. We need to see. We need to examine our lives, our hearts. We need to understand if we're truly, completely following after you. Lord, I pray that that as we participate in communion this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts would turn to you. You would convict us if we haven't given ourselves completely to you, and we would do that. Lord, I pray that that as a result, uh, in this body, we would just see amazing, amazing works of love, amazing works of obedience to you. In Christ's name, Amen.